Next up, to introduce this special issue of the PTJ is Dan Riddle. He's the deputy editor of the Physical Therapy Journal. Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you so much for coming at this uh, early and very t testy hour for a lot of people and at the uh, attending conference. It's always tricky to uh, expect folks to show up at 8 o'clock for a session, but I, I don't think you'll be disappointed with the content and quality of today's presentations. We at the Physical Therapy Journal are incredibly excited about this special issue that's going to be published most likely in May of 2011. And this issue that's dealing with psychological aspects of the care of patients with low back pain is, uh, I think, a long time coming. And our, our speakers are going to address this issue. Um, I am very pleased and proud to announce our two co-editors of this particular special issue. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Chris Main, who is professor at, at Keele University in Manchester, England, and he's sitting immediately to my left. And uh, the, the other co-editor for this special issue is Dr. Steve George, who is associate professor and assistant chair at the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Gainesville. I'm going to turn the mic over to them and they're going to begin the uh, session and again thank you so much for coming. Well thank you Dan and thank you everyone for coming. It is indeed a difficult time in the morning although it's actually 2 p.m. in the UK. Well greetings from the UK. Um, it's always a pleasure to be invited to anything and to be asked to come to New Orleans is a truly special treat. Keele University is in the middle of England, uh, sort of between Birmingham and Manchester and it's the biggest rural campus uh, in the United Kingdom. And this is the primary care medical center down here uh, where, where I work. Reasons for producing this special issue. Well, there's increasing evidence that psychosocial factors are associated with outcome of physical therapy. And there's been some evidence for efficacy of cognitive behavioral approaches to treatment. And Increasingly, this has led us to focus on the development of psychologically oriented pain management. And a particular impetus towards secondary prevention, because as you will hear in the later, uh, uh, later sessions this morning, um, we now know quite a lot about the sort of people uh, that are going to end up in difficulty. So there's an attractiveness of thinking in terms of an integrated biopsychosocial framework because of the potential for identifying those at risk of poor outcome. There's an opportunity to improve outcome of PT by addressing obstacles to recovery within clinical management. So the challenge really is to develop a new approach trying to integrate psychosocial and biomedical perspectives. These are the contents of the special issue which uh, Dr. Riddle said is coming out um, in May, although maybe out electronically before then. And you can cast your eye down, you can see the sort of papers now, we're only able today to present a selection and some of the flavour of what will be in the special issue. Um, that's the first half of them. And then the second half are here. So, um, the four of us uh, uh, that are presenting have been asked to focus on particular aspects of it, ranging from overall perspectives to some, methodo uh, some methodology. So, the structure of the symposium, first of all, um, Steve and I are presenting uh, on behalf of all authors of the paper and uh, Bill and uh, Julie Fritz, who will be here shortly, uh, are joining us in this task. We've had to be selective, we can't talk about everything. But we tried to crystallize uh, this uh, session around five key themes within an overall framework. 
Unfortunately, you've got to listen to me again next in terms of an overview of psychological processes and models. Then issues using psychological factors to predict outcome. Uh, Julie Fritz uh, will be joining us in a few minutes. Uh, Stephen George is then going to talk about early identification of risk factors and, and talking a little bit about the sort of interventions uh, that, that have been attempted. And we get Bill Shaw to talk particularly about addressing occupational factors in PT practice. And then uh, we go on to Stephen again talking about uh, integration of psychosocial principles into PT practice with a particular emphasis on education, training and implementation, some of the real channel challenges that I think we need to face if we're going to change the way clinical service is delivered. So the principal features, we're trying to suggest a new approach to PT. It is evolutionary rather than revolutionary, of course, and it developed from the biomedical model. And it really is focusing on a systematic rather than haphazard attention to psychosocial factors. We're trying to stake out a middle way between a narrow biomedical focus and full-blown CBT as found in the treatment of mental illness. But it's really derived from an evidence-based normal psychology of reactions to back pain. We're not talking about stranger weird people, apart from my good self. We're talking about uh, the normal psychology of how people react to pain and, and its limitations. So the concept of psychologically informed practice offers, we would argue, a more effective patient-centered approach to clinical management. It's not psychotherapy, it's perhaps a sort of psychophysiotherapy, if you like. It's not to be confused with psychochiropathy, which is opening your mouth and putting your foot in it. So the presenting authors, Julie Fritz uh, and Steve George, are distinguished uh, physical therapists, both from a clinical and a research background. And all you need to do is Google either of them, and you'll see what a tremendous contribution they've made to the profession. Bill Shaw equally has taught me everything that I know about occupational factors uh, in, and their importance in thinking about return to work and what goes on in the workplace. And then there's myself, and of course I'm really smart because I've got three even smarter people uh, following me in, in this symposium. Acknowledgements, PTG and editorial board for accepting our proposal for a special issue. It was floated as a very tentative idea, and we've been absolutely delighted in the enthusiasm and support that we've received. So Becky Craig, Dan Riddle, Jan Reynolds, encouragement, wisdom, forbearance, and all the special issue authors, of course, whom the four presenters here will try to do our best to represent what they've, they've given us. And obviously we have to acknowledge our many colleagues who have stimulated our little grey cells uh, over many years. My personal thanks, above all, to Stephen George, not only for a massive amount of work on this issue, but for his focus, professionalism, and unfailing good humour. It would not have been possible to do this without Steve. So, thank you for coming to the symposium. And now I'm going to introduce myself to give the next talk. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to start the session really by talking about psychosocial processes and models. This is a little bit of background because not all physical therapists have come across uh, some of the jargon uh, that you find in the literature. So we're going to take you through some of the perspectives that you commonly find. We'll, I'll start talking about psychological influences on the experience of pain, functional disability in response to treatment. I'll talk about the nature of psychological processes and particularly 
how cognitions, emotions and pain behaviour link up together. And then following the, uh, the chapter, uh, uh, Steve Linton and Bill Shaw, I'll be talking about five common models uh, that you'll find in the literature which are trying to address the issue of how people respond to pain and how disability develops. So we're really talking about development of a patient-centered approach and I'll finish off just with giving you a taste of some guiding principles that have been outlined at the end of the chapter. Although I don't have time to go into all the details and solutions that are presented, you'll have to wait for that coming online in a few weeks. And this presentation will finish by talking a little bit about the concept of yellow flags, which a number of us developed some years ago, uh, how we got involved in looking at psychosocial factors, um, where the research started uh, and where it sort of ended up, if you will. So to begin then, psychological influences on pain disability in response to treatment. Well, the experience of pain is shaped by a host of psychological factors related to physiological processes and importantly shaped by previous experience. It has important survival value. The psychological factors impact on every aspect of the pain experience and on the development of pain-associated limitations. So there are attractive potential targets in the context of secondary prevention. And PTs, of course, are aware of the potential importance of such factors, but typically they don't distinguish evidence-based from non-evidence-based factors. And there's a lack of guidelines on how such factors should or can be integrated to practice, and I guess we're hoping that this symposium and this special issue uh, will be a little bit of a kickstart uh, on this process. I'm just thinking a little bit about the sort of the overall framework. When we think about nociceptive stimulus, um, uh, uh, we become aware of it, uh, we attend to it, we interpret it, and we cope with it in some sort of ways. And this leads to pain behavior of various sorts, which in turn becomes influenced by its uh, consequences and the situation. So we've really got a system where pain uh, uh, becomes a center of attention, where it leads us to do things, and as a result of these things we do, we cope, letter, uh, we cope better or worse with pain itself and may develop unnecessary and preventable levels of pain disability. What about psychological processes? Well, first of all, we can think of them as a sequence of events. And it's perhaps helpful to view them as a series of linked processes, comprising the initial awareness of pain, the cognitive processes, beliefs, its appraisal, its interpretation, what does it mean? And how does it lead to the response to pain, the pain behavior that we see? But we can also think about them as consisting of interlocking mechanisms. Attention to pain may be linked to fear, anxiety, vigilance, and the influence of memory. If you've had a very bad pain experience in the past, uh, if you've really you know, been laid up with your back, uh, if it occurs again in the future or you start to get symptoms, you begin to worry that things are going to be as they were. So the influence of memory is very important. But particularly, we're interested in the cognitive interpretation, the beliefs and attitudes. You all heard about the difference between hurting and harming, and people may misunderstand the value of rest. Expectations about the course of pain and outcome of treatment, we know are predictive of both the development of persistent pain and the development of higher levels of pain-associated limitations. And we can think in terms of a number of cognitive sets, ways that people think, both helpful and unhelpful, uh, such as catastrophizing and worrying about unnecessarily and inappropriately about ending up in a wheelchair. And of course, the influence of emotions, which are predictive of the pain response and outcome. 
emotions and mood, we can think about them as central amplifiers to the pain experience. And <coughs> typically, when we try to understand patients that come to see us in the clinic, um, we're persuaded to ask a lot about the details of the characteristics of the pain itself, the pain pattern, uh, and, and how people are coping with the pain. And we may fail to pick up some very real concerns and anxieties, which is actually driving what they do. We've gone a long way from Descartes and his ideas about pain. Uh, where the, it was assumed that the brain was a kind of passive relay station. We now know that the brain is very active. And indeed, from the point of nociception onwards, a whole cascade of events follow. And this is a slide uh, lent to me by uh, one of my colleagues, Irene Tracy in England, who's done some wonderful uh, functional MRI work. And uh, on this slide, she really depicts how uh, the nociceptive input comes in through the fibers and it's then modulated um, in the brain. And all sorts of things happen which lead ultimately to the pain experience. We can think of the cognitive sets, the context in terms of beliefs, expectations. We can think of the influence of mood. And of course, we're increasingly understanding that this doesn't occur in the abstract. There's actually physiological and biochemical processes underlying this. Take home message. The brain is active, not passive. The experience of back pain cannot be fully understood without including central mechanisms. Cognitive and emotional factors are central to this process, as are their effects on behavior. And since psychological and behavioral factors are accessible, this is really good news. It offers us new possibilities for treatment and prevention. Well, in terms of psychological processes further, we can think of them as culminating in a behavioral response. And in a way, pain behavior can be thought of as the public face of pain. It's partly a biological response, escape, it may generalize through conditioning to other contextual factors. It's influenced also by its consequences, becoming more or less likely in the future, depending on what's happened in the past. And we have the behavioral paradox. We may not be aware of some of these influences on our pain behavior, but learning paradigms produce a tremendous opportunities for change. What about this behavioral legacy? Well, I do have to acknowledge the grandfather of all pain behavior, Bill Fordyce, who passed away about 15 months ago, he really changed the way we think by getting us to move and think not only about pathology and disease and structure, but actually to pain behavior itself and the influences on it. So we owe him a considerable debt. What can we do? Man who stands on the hill with mouth open will wait a long time for a roast duck to drop in. There's no point in just waiting to see what happens. We've got to take some action. What about chronic low back pain? Well, we've got acute pain, nociceptive pain, and it can end up in chronic pain, chronic low back pain, fibromyalgia, neuropathic pain, all different mechanisms, obviously. We're really interested in what happens between the acute pain and the chronic pain stage. And uh, really where psychological informed reactivation and practice sits is in this middle, it's in this middle ground. So there have been a number of models uh, that have been put together and are detailed in the chapter uh, for the development of persisting pain problems. The fear avoidance model, stress diathesis model, you don't want to say that when you've had too much to drink the night before. The self-efficacy model, acceptance and commitment model, and misdirected problem solving. I think that's the story of my life. What about fear avoidance then? 
The fear avoidance theory has been probably the single most influential theory in the pain field uh, since the gate control theory. And it's been advanced to explain how patients with an acute or subacute pain condition might over time end up in a chronic state of depression and disability. And Vlian talked about injury or strain leading to the experience of pain, which in turn, if people start to catastrophize and worry inappropriately, can lead to fear of movement or fear of re-injury, can lead to avoidance and stopping doing things because they're afraid of hurting themselves, and you end up with disuse, disability and depression. In contrast, if the pain experience is dealt with promptly and managed and understood, this reduces the level of fear and exposure, re-exposure to the situations that they might, might have become fearful of and recovery. So this model really has been one that's been very important, not only in research terms, but also it's got attractiveness uh, to clinicians. And of course, there's an even worse story in the left-hand loop here, catastrophizing and so forth, avoidance. People become concerned and more aware of symptoms themselves. Uh, and uh, you talked already uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, about the importance of central mechanisms. And uh, sometimes, if we become too hypervigilant and concerned, it can really short-circuit uh, adaptive ways of coping with pain. The second model that um, Steve Linton and Bill Shaw uh, uh, drew our attention to in the paper was that when low back pain befalls an individual who's already under significant psychological stress or whose coping resources are stretched thin, pain may result in more functional limitations and generate higher levels of emotional distress. What does this mean? Stress diathesis. It's a concept of pre-existing or ongoing vulnerabilities producing an enhanced response. Diathesis originally was used to refer to a genetic predisposition and it originated in the psychosomatic field. But it has echoes in the stress and life event literature and the concept of vulnerability and risk that you will see dotted around uh, uh, the, the, the literature. It was first used in thinking about pain by uh, distinguished researchers such as Herta Flor and Dennis Turk really in the late 80s. Uh, and although the term is not terribly, people don't use the term stress diathesis very much. It really was one of the antecedents of the development uh, of the yellow flags. Next model, the self-efficacy model, has been defined by Bandura as the belief in one's capabilities to organize and execute the courses of action required to produce given attainments. Well, let's try to translate that into English. It's talking about an important theoretical mechanism underpinning the development of self-management interventions recommends that provider advice and treatment should be delivered in such a way that takes into account individual patient preferences, involving patients in decision-making and producing useful management strategies for coping with flare-ups and functional difficulties. What about the more recent acceptance and commitment model? The heart of this model, developed originally by Hayes in 1999, the concept of psychological inflexibility, or inability to persist in or change behavioral patterns that might serve as long-term goals or values. And it's become an approach to pain management. The implication of the model for chronic pain is that individuals should reduce futile attempts to avoid and control pain. Focus instead should be on living life to the fullest, participating in value activities and pursuing personally relevant goals. And this is just so aspirational you can't believe it. A little bit more then about acceptance and commitment. Similarities to cognitive behavioural therapy in the focus on behaviour change, 
The main difference is on the role of cognitive factors and how they might be ad addressed as mechanisms associated with the therapeutic response. There's some evidence in chronic pain patients that accepting, acceptance leads to less emotional distress and higher physical functioning. And currently it's receiving quite a lot of research interest. Seems better suited for tertiary rehab than secondary prevention, but there are trials at the moment ongoing in this therapeutic approach in the context of secondary prevention. And finally, there's a misdirected problem-solving model, which is described in more detail in the paper than I can go into today. But if you just look at some of these links, uh, Crombies and his colleagues, distinguished psychologists, pain psychologists, have been looking at in experimental studies of the sort of ways that pain affects thinking, the sort of role of worry and emotion, and how sometimes people get stuck in kind of feedback loops, uh, uh, which really become quite unhelpful uh, in dealing with a pain problem. Misdirected problem solving, the models suggest that worries about pain, such as catastrophizing, are the product of a human disposition and probably an evolutionary advantage to solve problems by verbally ruminating on possible negative outcomes and plotting methods of avoidance or escape. Based on a lot of experimental work into the relationship between worry and pain, and perhaps explains why persistent pain repeatedly interrupts attention, fuels worries about negative consequences, and produces hypervigilance, over-concern about pain, and repeated efforts to alleviate the pain, even when there's no belief that a solution exists. So its specific role in secondary prevention is still to be established, but the, the overall construct, I think, is, is, is helpful in understanding the sort of mess that patients sometimes get into. And to almost conclude, at uh, the end of the, uh, the paper, um, Stephen and Bill have produced a number of guiding principles and some commentary on this, which I don't have time to get into. Uh, but talking about a number of the important factors that we should bear in mind. And the first point is that psychological factors are not routinely assessed, but persistent pain is emotional and behavioral consequences. Depression makes pain more difficult to deal with. And of course, one of the most effective treatments for depression is showing people how to cope with pain. Persistent pain can lead to hypervigilance and avoidance, for which simple distraction is not effective. And there are wide individual differences in attitudes and beliefs, and that's why you have to start by really finding out where the patient's at before you start uh, advising them about what to do. Personal expectations are quite strong predictors of outcome. And catastrophization is an important predictor of pain persistence and clinical outcome. There's been a lot of uh, research done into this construct, and probably after fear, catastrophization uh, is the most important uh, uh, psychological variable that reflects pain and disability. There's some evidence, as I said, that personal acceptance and commitment is associated with better outcome in chronic pain. And social obstacles may also constitute barriers to return to work, as Bill Shaw is going to uh, present to us uh, shortly. And they've suggested that with proper support and training, these psychological factors can be incorporated into conventional treatment methods, and that's really the whole tenor of this special issue. Well, finally, talking a little bit about yellow flags. This is a monograph that was produced to try to uh, encapsulate what we knew at that time about psychosocial factors. Psychosocial referring to the interaction between the person and their environment and their influences on behaviour. We developed them originally in uh, 1997. And in this little monograph, we addressed beliefs, behaviours and emotional responses, likely to ident uh, identifying them uh, to be helpful in developing long-term problems. 
contained both health and occupational elements. It took me a long time to get that yellow flag to fly. Let me tell you, I hope you appreciate this. <laughs> Original monograph included a screening tool, a questionnaire, a Linton and Holden questionnaire, which has been later developed into the Oribri questionnaire, assessment guidelines based on stem and leaf prompts, and 12 management recommendations, which I thought were pretty neat and nobody ever talks about. Why were they developed? Well, in the early mid-90s in New Zealand, the cost of musculoskeletal problems and low back pain in particular were becoming a major problem because patients had a legal entitlement to as much treatment as they requested following a self-defined musculoskeletal accident. Physiotherapists and chiropractors in particular were offering massive numbers of treatment sessions. I interviewed one patient that had over 500 physiotherapy treatments. And the cost of chronic low back pain was bankrupting the New Zealand Accident and Compensation Corporation. The key question is why were so many cases becoming chronic, so disabled and not returning to work? Was there any way of preventing this? So Nick Kendall, a senior lecturer at the University of Otago and pain psychologist, was asked to help the corporation investigate the problem when he wrote in Steve Linton from Sweden and myself from the UK. This led to the birth of the yellow flags, which I'll give you an insight into. First thing is, it happened in New Zealand. <laughs> Land of Lord of the Rings. And Nick and I, uh, in a couple of days off, went up to the Maruya Thermal Springs in the Southern Alps. Volcanic area. Thermal mineral water. We were there for a couple of days with several bottles of fine New Zealand wine. Like an interesting chemical reaction. <laughs> So that was the origin of the yellow flags. <laughs> we later on talked about blue and black flags, Kim Burton and I, two more colored flags waving, please note. Blue flags concerned with the perception of work and working conditions, which after injury may become significant obstacles to recovery and are not, often not addressed specifically in clinical treatment and rehab. And black flags, more objective working characteristics and conditions. So we made a differentiation between the clinical yellow flags and the occupational factors. And this was summarized a couple of years ago in a monograph that was an update of the 1997 one. And here we talked about the need to consider person factors, the psychosocial factors associated with unfavorable outcomes, the ones I've just told you about, and with the transition to persistent pain and disability. Also look at workplace factors stemming largely from perceptions about the relationship between work and health, associated with the reduction in the ability to work in prolonged absence, and Bill uh, Shaw is going to present to us on that. And finally, black flags, the wider systems and contexts in which the person functions, entitlements to health care, um, building issues. They may operate at a society level or the workplace, and they're important because sometimes they can block uh, recovery to work while pe if people are still symptomatic. So in conclusion, the nature assessment and management of these factors are now going to be addressed by my colleagues. Consideration will be given both to the methodological challenges in linking risk assessment with intervention but also the practical difficulties of developing and implementing psychology, uh, psychologically informed practice. And it's not my great pleasure to hand over to Julie Fitz, which is one of the most, most, who's one of the most distinguished clinical and research uh, physical therapists. <laughs>